You're listening to the National Secular Society podcast, hosted by Emma Park. On the 1st of July this year, the Chinese government pushed through a new security law in Hong Kong to greatly restrict citizens' rights to basic freedoms such as freedom of speech. If you have been following events in China in recent years, this most recent crackdown on civil liberties by a very authoritarian regime will not have come as a surprise. It follows on from stories of the mass internment of Uyghur Muslims in Western China, of the persecution of followers of the Dalai Lama in Tibet, and of the massive surveillance technology which the Chinese government is using on its own citizens throughout the country. Those who want to follow their religion or belief independently of state interference continue to be at risk of persecution, and the Chinese government is doing its best to influence the narrative outside its borders as well. But what is actually happening to religious minorities in China? What is the outlook for religious freedom there in the future? I'm joined now from Washington, D.C. by Dr. Sophie Richardson. Sophie Richardson is China Director at Human Rights Watch, an international nonprofit organization that investigates and reports on human rights abuses around the world. Sophie, the Hong Kong national security law has just come into force. I imagine this is keeping you quite occupied at the moment. Yes, it's uh, an extraordinary law in that it seems boundless, both in the behavior it criminalizes, but also the the people uh, to whom it applies. It seems to actually have been written to apply even to people outside Hong Kong. And it really gives the authorities uh, the opportunity to punish all sorts of peaceful criticism or even behavior that's not meant to criticize the Hong Kong or the central government. If you take the law at face value and uh, you know the language that essentially suggests that any sort of criticism can be construed or deemed as subversive or indicative of secessionist or terroristic impulses, uh, you know the wording really is incredibly vague you know, that could include, uh, you know, practicing one's faith. And I, I think some of the people who may be targeted under this new law, you know, are people like Cardinal Zen or other figures from different faith communities who have been critical both of the Hong Kong and central government authorities. Uh, you know, the, the, the goal of this law in Beijing's mind is to make everyone stop and think twice about any kind of behavior and wonder whether it could be construed as illegal. And that will extend, you know, to everything from choosing to run for office to choosing to uh, go to a protest and presumably choosing to practice your faith. So, so is the idea behind the national security law that its terms are sufficiently vague that it, it just sort of in, induces an air of paranoia? So people, uh, just a general um, repression of, of people's way they think and the way they act. Precisely. And in the, you know, in the 48 hours before the law went into effect, it probably bears mention that people were not able to see the text of the law until it was going into effect. Uh, but in the 48 hours prior to that, you know, we were watching all kinds of activists deleting all of their social media accounts, withdrawing from political parties, announcing that they had changed their mind about whether to run for office, precisely because it's not clear that those behaviors won't be prosecuted under the new law. 
Wow. So well, well let, let's turn to um, the, the Chinese Communist Party um, and, and mainland China and, and what's been going on there, because, of course, that's the source of this um, new direction in Hong Kong. Under the Chinese constitution, is there, at least on paper, a right to freedom of religion and belief? On paper, you are allowed normal religious activities. And of course, a great deal depends on what constitutes normal. And historically, the authorities have been reasonably tolerant of people who are worshiping in state-sanctioned churches or communities. But anything outside of those is subject to prosecution. Uh, And even people who do worship within those state communities have not always been protected by that status. so it, again, it's you know it's just another example of how the authorities reserve uh, you know this incredibly arbitrary power to shut down essentially whoever they don't like whenever they don't like. But one of the very disturbing pathologies under President Xi Jinping has been a push to cynicize religion, which you know essentially means making religion more of a tool for the Chinese Communist Party rather than truly respecting uh, people's rights to believe. The, the Chinese Communist Party has no respect for the idea that, that religious freedom and freedom of belief are individually held. They're for, they're for people to have or not have, not for a government to give or take away. Uh, what, what is it that the Chinese Communist Party, why, why does it feel so threatened by religions? Well, I think because the party sees religion as not just an alternative ideology, but it's far more concerned about religion as an alternative organizing vehicle. Uh, and it is it is incredibly neuralgic about that. And I mean, it's worth pointing out that it's incredibly neuralgic about independent civil society groups or you know, people whose ethnic identities uh, you know, result in as much of a sense of commonality with, for example, communities in Central Asia as an identity as a citizen of the PRC. Uh, but I think, you know, historically, religion in particular and, and uh, you know, a sense of, of adherence to a different set of principles and particularly for faiths whose leaderships are in different parts of the world you know, the idea that people inside China are have a higher loyalty, for example, to the Vatican uh, is not something Beijing likes. Sure. And well, well, let's move to the most striking example of, of Chinese suspicion of religion at the moment, which is its treatment of um, the CCP's treatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, which is, of course, in the far western part of China in, in sort of Central Asia. Um, now, of course, the Uyghurs are distinct historically in terms of their culture, religion, and ethnicity from the um, Han Chinese majority. How did it come up about that they are part of China in the first place? Well, essentially, you know, the PRC says it had a claim to that particular piece of territory, and it was absorbed into the People's Republic uh, in 1949. I think what many people, or I should say it this way, you know, some people do advocate independence. I think what many people would accept or find acceptable uh, would be the kind of genuine autonomy that 
Xinjiang and Tibet and Hong Kong are meant to enjoy. Has, has um, Xinjiang ever enjoyed this autonomy? I mean, have, have the restrictions on it become recent or have they been going on since 1949? You're absolutely correct that Xinjiang has never really enjoyed autonomy in any meaningful sense. Uh, and in the last several years, we have watched the authorities, you know, not just deny uh, uh you know, any degree of independent representation, for example, or the ability of local authorities to make decisions as they see fit. But in fact, we've watched the state really launch a wholesale assault on Uyghur's distinct identity. So what are the main ways that it's doing that? You know, we've documented in recent years, mostly uh, through mass arbitrary detention of Uyghurs, is, you know, clearly an effort to reprogram people to force them to abolish their religious faith, to force them to speak Chinese instead of Uyghur, to force them to swear their loyalty to the central government and the party. Uh, you know, it's, it's not an accident that you, central government officials will now refer, for example, to the practice of Islam as a mental illness. Oh my gosh, that, that's really extreme. Yes. And then that is officially what, what they're going to say about Islam. Yeah, that, that, that to be, uh, I mean, you, you see it regularly that, that uh, you know, to practice Islam as a form of extremism, uh, that it's often conflated with terrorism or separatism. There's, there seems to be a particular hostility on the party's part towards Uyghurs. And, and how many of the Uyghurs are likely to be interned at the moment? Well, I mean, this is the moment when, you know, an independent international investigation, ideally under the auspices of the United Nations, should be able to visit the region and assess that. We have associated ourselves with the figure of approximately a million uh, Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslims detained in political education centers since roughly 2017. More recent information suggests that some of those people, we don't really know how many, have either been shifted into formal prisons, because of course the political education centers are not constituted by any Chinese law. Uh, right. So they're not, um, they're not const within the within Chinese um, constitution, they're not technically lawful, or is there some sort of exception that uh, would allow them? No, they're making it up. There's no legal basis under domestic or international law for, for Chinese authorities to arbitrarily detain or to detain people in this way. Even Chinese law dictates that you have to go through some kind of legal process that you're meant to be presented, you know, with, with you know, charges that are clearly constituted. And that's obviously not what's happening in Xinjiang. But it also seems to be the case that some people, again, it's hard to tell how many, have been quasi-released either into forms of forced or, or coerced labor or into some kind of long-term house arrest. But nobody should confuse any of this with people actually being free, let alone to worship. In, in the forced labor camps, there have been reports that they've been using the, the Uyghurs to um, make things that have gone into the international supply chain and been used by international companies. Is, is there any evidence for that? Well, I think what we know for sure is that companies themselves are not able to do the kind of due diligence uh, to be confident they aren't using forced or coerced labor 
uh, in their business dealings in Xinjiang. And I think that's an issue for governments and for shareholders and consumers to think long and hard about. But do, do we know any stories of, of particular atrocities that, that are happening within the um, political education centres, as they're called? Yes, we've documented, uh, you know, physical torture and ill treatment beatings uh, uh, and, and sort of that, that realm of abuses. I think it is fair to say that anyone detained in a political education center is being subjected to psychiatric torture because people have no way of knowing how long they're going to be held there. You know, relatively few of them even know what it was that landed them there in the first place. Uh, you know, and they're not told, presumably, why they're there. Correct, mm. correct. Mm. You know, and and many of them are, as far as we can tell, being subjected to constant humiliation over their faith, their identity, their language. Many of them are separated from family members. Uh, some of, I think, the most chilling abuses we've documented in the region as a result of the campaign that drove the establishment of the political education centers is what's happening to children whose parents have been detained. Um, right. What's happened? So what is happening to, to we've, them? We've documented a number of children who were essentially placed in state care where they too are being denied uh, any access to the faiths that their families were raising them in to speak Uyghur and they're being taught in Chinese. Uh, it's Some parents have told us they literally don't know where their children are. Right, so the, the children have totally been cut off from their parents. Yeah, not just from their parents, but really from their cultures, their communities. And I think we should all be concerned longer term about whether this essentially results in, you know, the compulsory cynicization, for lack of a better term, uh, of of these children. I mean, presumably that's not just becoming Chinese in any particular way. It's becoming Chinese according to a particular um, idea of what Chinese means. Precisely. And it's the party's idea of what that means. You know, being loyal to the party, that means speaking Chinese. That means, you know, not, you know, not worshipping outside of the state churches. Tick on down the list. There's a very specific meaning of that term. Yeah. And what is the Chinese government's, as far as um, you can gather, what, what appears to be um, its long-term plan for the Uyghurs? Well, I think its long-term plan for not just the Uyghurs, but for everyone across the country is to, you know, either program or surveil people into total obedience, you know, really to generate a dissent-free society. It's, it's a very peculiar phenomenon what's happening with ethnic minorities, most notably Tibetans and Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslims, that you know, the idea almost seems to be that, that those people will be allowed to exist as, as sort of a distinct ethnicity, but all of the substance of that distinct identity will be hollowed out and replaced with that which the Chinese Communist Party finds acceptable. So it's okay to be a Tibetan so long as you're not a Buddhist and that you are not loyal to the Dalai Lama and that you speak Chinese and that you're you know, supportive of the party. 
So actually, yeah, let's let's turn to Tibet. I mean, is is the situation there similar to um, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang? Is it is it um how how have the Tibetan Buddhists been treated by the Chinese Communist Party in recent years? Yeah, I think that the authorities have treated Tibetans in a bit differently in that they don't seem to see or sense a similar set of concerns about terrorism or violence. With Tibetans, the concern seems to be about ongoing adherence, not just to Buddhism, but to the Dalai Lama in particular. Uh, and it's extraordinary when you look at the effort the state has made, the money, the time, the resources that have gone into trying to force people into worshiping only in the ways that the party finds acceptable. And this comes up particularly around issues about the Dalai Lama's succession. In Within Tibet, how far, I mean, if, if the Tibetans are not accepting um, the Chine, Chinese government's alternative candidate, um, presumably this is causing tensions between the Tibetans and the, the Chinese authorities. For sure. And it's not just tension. It is increasingly harsh punishments for people who you know, let that lack of loyalty show. Such as what? What sort of punishments have they been? Oh, people getting sentences of 10, 12, 15 years on ridiculous charges like, quote, stirring up troubles, mm -hmm. essentially for having a photograph of the Dalai Lama in their homes or having, um, you know, some information about him or, you know, other people from, from that faith community found on their phones, for example. So it's, it's really quite um, pervasive and in, intrusive to people's life, it's, lives. But it's not just that. It, the, the, the extent of the Chinese government's tentacles into monasteries and nunneries, into aspects of religious education, are really pervasive. Do uh, they have um, sort of their own candidates within these, these monasteries? Oh, absolutely. I mean, all, all uh, imams and lamas and across you know, all different faiths, achieving that status requires the authority's permission. Sure, so they're, they're effectively, they do what the the, right. the authorities want them to do. Um, but there are also, it's worth pointing out, there are also um, party-appointed or, or government-appointed individuals who are now installed in monasteries ostensibly for the purposes of, quote-unquote, management, but that they're there for surveillance purposes. I mean, now of course, um, Tibet and Xinjiang, um, they're quite remote areas compared with um, the, the majority of the Chinese population who are in central and eastern China. But what's happening in, in that, that part of China and in the cent center and the east, is there an equal amount of persecution of religious minorities? Um, and is it equally blatant or is it more covert? It plays out differently for, especially in, in communities of what are known as house churches, um, you know, which, which are, uh, you know, Christian denominations that don't want to worship inside uh, the state institutions, which is understandable. Those communities are often subject to things like raids, uh, arbitrary detention, but members of that of those communities have also gotten harsh sentences on serious charges. Do you have any specific examples of of, of what's been happening to the Christians? Of particular stories of, of Christians suffering persecution from the authorities? Sure. Just in the past year or two, the case of the early Rain Church, which is uh, one of these underground house churches, and that has proved very. Uh, popular isn't quite the right word, but it's gained a lot of adherence, partly because 
uh, they're very involved in providing certain kinds of services or support, and sort of what you and I might think of as pastoral care to other people in the community. And that really got the authorities' backs up, the idea that, that these people weren't just congregating for the purpose of worshiping, but also to provide help to other people in the community. You would think that authorities would like that? No. Yeah, they, they don't really like um, civil society in general, what is the, is the impression. Precisely, precisely. Uh, and so the pastor of that community was prosecuted and given, uh, I think, an 11-year sentence. Uh, and, and I'm now not recalling precisely what the charges were. <laughs> and what about the Falun Gong group? Because they've been in the news a lot over the last couple of decades or so as, as being sort of the Chinese government seems to claim that they're terrorists. Is, is there any basis to that? No. <laughs> I mean, this is, I mean, the Chinese government also refers to the Dalai Lama as a terrorist. Um, but yeah, the, the, the Chinese authorities, I think, have a particular hostility towards Falun Gong practitioners across China after they had organized and demonstrated very visibly to the authorities surprise uh, years ago. And since that time, the community has really been largely driven underground. Uh, and it can be very hard to get information about particular cases, but I see no reason to believe why those people might be treated any better now than they were in the past. Rather, I think what we've seen is you know comparable comparable hostility or suspicion of other uh, religious or spiritual communities fan out across the country. Um, just you mentioned um, that in Xinjiang, for example, Uyghurs are required to swear an oath of, of loyalty to the party. And um, thinking of the numerous monuments to Mao Zedong around China, um, such as this enormous mausoleum in Tiananmen Square, do you think citizens are being encouraged by um, the Chinese authorities to treat Mao worship as a sort of substitute religion? That's a great question. Uh, I mean, we could also debate whether they're substituting Xi Jinping worship. From sure, Mao. I was going to ask that as well, yeah. Um, well, I mean, look, clearly swearing loyalty to the party is, uh, is, a, is a favorite tool. You know, so there, there are clear campaigns going on all the time across the country. And I think that has to be considered alongside very aggressive steps by authorities in parts of the country like Tibet and Xinjiang to destroy a cultural property, the Larangar Buddhist community, uh, you know, the, the numbers of mosques and shrines and even cemeteries in Xinjiang that have been torn down or paved over is appalling. You know, and it's not just the loss of, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the history and the, and the faith, but also it's such an aggressive gesture of repudiating whole communities and destroying you know, sacred spaces. I think that's a very clear marker of, of what a government is all about. Sure. So it's, it's literally just eliminating their whole identity in a way. Exactly. Yeah. But but what about uh, if, if we think of, you know, the, the place of Mao in, in Chinese society today, do you think he's, he's viewed by people um, as a sort of almost like a god? I honestly don't know. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> it's always hard to answer a question on behalf of 1.4 billion people. Well, of course, of course, yes. <laughs> and it's even harder to do when, you know, it's it's incredibly hard to know, you know, people's true feelings given the state of surveillance. Mm. Uh, but if implicitly your question is, does the party push people to worship 
who it says they should worship? Absolutely. Do people buy it? Hmm. I think that's that's an open question. Is there any hope for for freedom of um, thought in China in the long term? Do you think? And if if so, where is it going to come from? Well, I think I think you know the the persistence of people who do find ways of maintaining their faith or their belief in ideas the party doesn't believe in. I think I think humans are are quite resilient, especially about you know their their most core values and beliefs. I guess it's different difficult when you have children who are being ed- educated within the state system who may not remember or share all of their parents' views. For sure. Uh, you know, whether people succeed in transmitting those to their children, you know, is an open question. I, mean, I think this is precisely the frustration in Tibet, you know, that, that for decades, the authorities have worked so hard to wipe out these beliefs and, and, and meaning adherence to Buddhism. And yet that faith is quite resilient. <laughs> I think that, I think the authorities don't quite know what to do about that. Well, what about in terms of the international community? Do you think that the international community can have a positive effect on um, the re- suppression of freedoms in China? I think, uh, so it's a very broad statement, but I think the uh, the governments that claim to care about human rights radically underestimated for somewhere between 10 and 15 years the direction of the Chinese Communist Party intended to go in. And so the current reality really is a very powerful Chinese government that is uh, you know, very engaged in international institutions and economies all over the world. And a group of governments that are watching, for example, you have developments in Xinjiang and Hong Kong unfold, and they are speaking up at forums like the UN Human Rights Council it's not yet clear, though, that they are willing to take the kinds of steps that might actually change the Chinese government's calculations. What sort of steps might those be? Right. Are those governments actually going to come together and impose sanctions on senior Chinese leaders in response to serious human rights violations? Are they going to you know, uh, either impose visa bans on those people or you know, provide safe haven, for example, to people from Hong Kong? Are they, you know, are, are they actually going to try to hold senior Chinese government officials accountable through UN mechanisms the same way that you would hold accountable you know, people from other governments like, you know, the, the, the Myanmar military or, you know, other rights abusing regimes held accountable for their human rights violations? Sophie Richardson, you've given us a lot to think about. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm now joined by Alistair Lichten, Head of Education at the NSS, for his expert comment on um, Dr. Sophie Richardson's interview. Alistair, hello. Hi. Do you think that... uh, China's treatment of of religion can in any sense be called secularist because it's certainly not religious. This is an issue that we've covered and spoken out about, but the information has been limited. It is clearly one of the most wide-ranging and horrific crimes against humanity happening today. And critics of 
critics of secularism might want wish to lay that at secularists' uh, door, as it were. So I think there are two ways of answering whether the the specific these two specific situations or China's treatment of religion in general is secularist. The first could be just quite a simple thing to say. It's clearly not secularism. In fact, it's the opposite of secularism, but by almost by definition, when you have state regulating religion, when you have state mandating how people should practice their religious beliefs and um, outlawing religious uh, outlawing and persecuting particular religious religious identities, you could also argue that what China, how China treating religion, is a model of secularism. However. If you were to buy that argument, you would have to say that it's such an illiberal model of secularism that it is just completely outside of what we are talking about. It's completely outside the realm of liberal secularism. It's so far in that dire uh, direction. It's, it'd be kind of like um, calling a penguin a dinosaur. You know, under some definitions, you could make that technical argument, but it's just completely outside of the realm of liberal secularism. Absolutely. And I mean, I think one of the key things about secularism, as far as I'm concerned, is the fact that it supports pluralism and it very much fosters freedom of religion and belief as well as freedom of expression as far as possible um, within what is necessary um, in, in a democratic society. Whereas China, on the contrary, is as Dr. Richardson said, certainly doesn't do that. It does not allow any freedom of expression, really, um, in religious matters, except to the very, very limited extent um, uh, in which the state really has total control um, over, over people's beliefs. And in that, in that sense, it's structurally and in terms of effect, very similar to a, free, uh, to a theocracy. Theocracies impose, uh, mandate and impose their own uh, their own ideology and how others must act and very often are very concerned about ident even just identities that they perceive as a threat to the identity which they are seeking to create as well as the ideology which they are se seeking to suffuse throughout the society through the theocracy. Absolutely and I mean I think the, the, the very striking thing about China is that Everything which is about the individual, individual freedom of belief, individual independence, as um, Sophie Richardson was saying, is discouraged. What is encouraged is um, and, and supported by law is just following what the state says about everything. So in a way, we can sort of, I, I, I would say that um, politics, really, the, the love of the Communist Party, as it were, has taken the place of religion, but it's just as bad as a religion for people who want to be different. And it could be seen as an extreme example of what we see in some models of illiberal secularism or some anti-secularist models where freedom of religion and belief is removed from the in, the concern about individuals and individuality and placed within a context of groups. So if we see secularism as about protecting individuals' rights to freedom of and from religion, some groups which who what he wish to seek to impose more religion will talk about religious groups' right to freedom of religion over and above the individual, and some groups who wish to get rid of religion will talk about the group's right to freedom from religion over and above the individual again. 
Well, one could argue the whole point of secularism or the, the Western liberal tradition and, and thinkers like from, from J.S. Mill onwards, you know, it's about protecting the individual. That's what life is about. It's about individuals. It's not protecting some group defined by a particular authority. Because it's up to individuals to define their own identity. Uh, individuals can are able to reconcile their religious identity and their national identity but some nations wish to resolve that in the way which they choose for everyone rather than that individual choice. Exactly, and that's, that's what's anathema to secularism. And, and I mean, talking, talking of um, state control in different ways of, of individual belief and you know, individual manifestation of belief, um, I think Sophie Richardson mentioned this briefly, that um, the international response so far has been pretty weak. I mean, I think including in Islamic majority countries. Yes, uh, this actually is a point that our honorary associate Nick Cohen made in an important piece in The Guardian over the weekend. In that piece, he actually also pointed out that Chinese officials have called criticism of what's going on blasphemous. So that's another way in which uh, the theocracies and these state atheist regimes can, can mirror each other. It's partly that illiberal, on the international stage, illiberal regimes, regardless of the specific ideological wrappings of the regime, tend to stick together. So an atheist authoritarian regime and an Islamic theocracy probably have more in common because of the shared uh, the shared authoritarianism, the shared desire to impose a particular uh, worldview than other states, which you know, uh, which have very different backgrounds, but are more towards the liberal, democratic, secularist end of the spectrum. It also goes to show that when the theocratic regimes criticise and make and call for religious freedom in the West, that that's very much they're talking about their freedom they're talking about again freedom of specific groups to have specific practices rather than any sort of genu genuine concern uh, for the individual rights uh, absolutely and it's always freedom of them but used as, as a weapon to sort of suppress other people's right to their own freedom of speech and, and of expression absolutely I think the conclusion we can draw from this whole um, podcast is that China is definitely not secularist in any um, positive sense of that word.